Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, if you're listening today, I know exactly what you need. You need hope and encouragement. And my prayer is that the message you are about to hear will help you find hope and encouragement in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about our church, visit our website, northwoodbaptist.com, or follow us on Facebook. Now, get ready for a message that will help you connect faith to life. All right, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Genesis. We are continuing our journey through this long book this morning. And so we're in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. But in a moment, I'm going to read to you the first eight verses. So Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, as we continue our journey through this book together. If you don't own a Bible, that's okay. Because in the seat before you, in the book rack, you should find a copy of the Bible. Pick that Bible up, turn to Genesis 4 with us. Real easy to find, very first book in the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Read it and learn about the God who loves you and desires a relationship with you. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So it's a fun time of the year because baseball season has started back up. And if you're like me, you're excited to see your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor's kids, whoever's kids playing ball. And so we didn't play last year. None of us did. At least I don't think we did because of, of COVID. So we started the season, but it got canceled. Like for my kids, after the first practice, they called it off. And so, so it's the first time. Uh, they've played in a couple years. In fact, for Hudson, it's his first time ever playing baseball. He's playing what they call modified T-ball, where you throw him a few pitches, and if he strikes out, then gets hit off the tee. We had his first game. He hit the pitch every time last game. I, now, I'm, I'm, I'm his coach, so I'm kind of partial to him, and I'm also his dad. So at any rate, um, but, but he did really well, and, and Luke had his first game this past week. And, and so Luke is, is in the 10-year-old league. It's the first year that he's playing where they're actually doing uh, the kids pitch to each other rather than have a coach pitch. So, so they're all learning how to adjust to that, and it's really interesting to watch. And, and, and since we've been out of it for a couple years, I've forgotten like, um, how passionate parents are about baseball. So the first game I was sitting there and I heard the parents behind me just yelling at everybody, like the kids, the umps, the coaches, me, whoever they could find. They were yelling at us. It was a lot of fun. And so, so I was at Luke's practice uh, this past week. We went to his, his practice and, and, and I, I sat there and was, I was watching them practice and there was a, a mama sitting behind me and her, her, her son was playing third base. And, and I don't remember exactly what he did, but he committed some kind of error. I don't know if the ball rolled through his legs and he didn't get it or something, but, but I heard her kind of saying just quietly that boy needs to run I'm like okay they all need to run I guess and and the next thing I knew she was standing up and she yelled out to her son at third base drop your glove and start running and he did like she wasn't the coach she, she, I mean, she wasn't on the field. She was just mom in the stands telling her son what to do go run I mean coach was like okay he's gone and and like that's some parenting skill right there. I need to learn that trick, you know. And, uh, but, but there we are, and I'm just watching all this craziness. And if you've had kids in sports or you've been involved in sports, you know how passionate parents get about their kids playing ball. I, I, I tell you all that to tell you this story. Some of you might remember this. It happened a long time ago, 1991. Uh, some of you weren't even born then. But 1991, there was, this, there was this mom who became known infamously as the pom-pom mom. Remember this story? So what happened is that, that she desperately wanted her daughter to make the cheerleading squad. 
But there's a young lady, another, another young girl that, that she thought would beat her daughter out. So she devised a plan. Hire a hitman to kill the girl's mother. She was going to kill the girl too, but it was too much money. So she just opted to kill the mom. I kid you not. And so she paid $1,500. That's the price of a hitman back in 1991. $1,500, not much. $1,500 she paid for this hitman to kill this girl's mom because her logic was if this girl's mom was dead, then obviously the, the girl would be too distraught and would not do very well when it came time for cheerleading tryouts because, you know, when your mom dies, you're pretty sad and that kind of thing. And so that's what she did. And so, so here we are, you know, left wondering what in the world, what in the world would cause someone to be so sick and, and so disturbed that they would actually kill someone to see their child succeed. Here we are in Genesis chapter 4. And I, you can do it right now. I, I don't know in your Bible what it looks like, but in my Bible, it's like two pages in, right? So count the pages. You're like two pages into the Bible. Two pages into God's Word. Two pages and you're already reading about the very first murder. It doesn't take long. The first murder happens in the first family. Adam and Eve, they have two sons, and the oldest son kills the younger. I mean, what in the world, what would cause someone to hate someone so much that they would kill that person. This is an interesting story. And if you've been in church for a while, I'm sure that you've heard this story before. Maybe you heard it in Sunday school. Maybe you heard it at vacation Bible school. Maybe it's the first time you ever heard it. I have no idea, but it's a fascinating story. And I think for us, what this story shows us is what happens when you and I choose to ignore God. Because here's the reality. Cain knows God. In fact, God's going to talk to him in this passage. It's not like Cain didn't believe in God. Cain knows God. But what we're going to find out in this story that while Cain knows God, he made a very deliberate decision to ignore God. And, and my concern is that for my life and your life as well, that, that we know God, we even believe in God, but on a daily basis, there are many of us that are making the conscious decision to ignore God, to ignore his will, to ignore his voice, to ignore what he's calling us to do with our lives. And so what I want to show you from this story, I want to show you just very briefly three tragedies that happen in your life when you choose to ignore God. Three tragedies that happen in your life when you choose to ignore God. Take your Bibles, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. When you have that passage, go and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's word. Genesis 4, 1 through 8, this is what the Bible says. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Let's pray together. Father, 
we're looking at um, just a dark story this morning. But Father, we know that as we look at your word together, there's truth here for us. And, and you're going to encourage us. You're going to give us hope. And you're also going to challenge us this morning from your word. And so I pray that as we study together, you would help us now in these moments to not ignore your voice, but to listen carefully to your voice. And help us to respond to your voice today in faith and obedience. Father, we believe that this moment we have together is a holy moment. You're present in this room with us. You're speaking to us now. Help us not to tune out right now, but to tune in to your spirit and what you want to accomplish in us this morning. And ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Now, I want you to remember back to Easter Sunday. I know that seems like it was forever ago, but, but Easter Sunday was the last time we were in the book of Genesis together. Last week, uh, Zach preached from the Gospel of Luke, but on Easter Sunday, we looked at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but, but at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise. He, he speaks to Satan, and he says to Satan, the serpent, he says, there is going to come a day when a seed from the woman, an offspring from the woman is going to crush your head. We said a couple weeks ago that Genesis 3.15, it really is the first gospel proclamation. There's hope. Adam and Eve had messed everything up, so it seemed. But God had a plan that, that someday Satan would be defeated and God's people would be given victory, a promise. Now here we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4. And you have to wonder what Eve's wondering. Because if you remember a few weeks ago, I, I told you that, that what I thought was that, that from that point on, Eve was always asking the question. Adam was asking the question. God's people were asking the question, when? When is this promise going to come to fruition? And maybe in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when, when Eve gives birth to that first child born, that first baby born on this earth, maybe she held Cain. And maybe she thought, here he is. In fact, that, that name Cain, it's interesting. The name Cain means to get. Maybe he's thinking, I got him. With the help of the Lord, I got a man. I got him. This is the one. This is going to be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent and, and make everything right again. And then a second child is born, a child by the name of Abel, which is also an interesting name because the name Abel means breath. And when you think about breath in the Bible, you think about the breath of God, God breathing life into his people. But I don't know if you know this or not, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, do you remember this? Solomon says, vanity. Everything is vanity. That word vanity in the Hebrew language is the same word as Abel, breath. And as we read the story, <laughs> Abel's life is a breath. It's gone pretty quickly. Abel's life, in a lot of ways, and we'll get into this in a moment, it seems rather vain. But here you have it. Two children, Cain and Abel. And both of these boys, they grow up, and both these boys, they have respectable professions. Cain takes after his daddy, Adam. He is a, a farmer of the fields, cultivating the land, uh, while Abel is a shepherd, watching over the flocks. And I don't know how they know it, Moses, who writes the book of Genesis for us, he doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't tell us how they knew it, but they knew to make sacrifices. And so, so a, a time comes when, when Cain and Abel, they both bring sacrifices and, and they do what you expect they would do. They bring sacrifices from their labor. 
Cain brings uh, from the fruit of the ground, while, while Abel brings uh, from, from his flock. And they both bring these offerings before God from their respective professions. And, and Cain's offering, you know the story, is rejected. While Abel's offering is accepted. And, and so we're left with a question, why? Why would God choose to accept Abel's offering and why would he choose to reject Cain's offering? Now, when Moses writes this, he, he doesn't really spell out all the details. He doesn't give us lots of verses to help us understand exactly why God chose Abel's offering and, and why he rejected Cain's offering. But, but I think there's a clue in the text as to why God accepted one and rejected the other. And you, you might have seen this as we read through. You come down and you look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering. Now, there was nothing wrong with what Cain brought. He brought from his profession, and as we read into the Old Testament, when we get to places like Leviticus, for example, which we're studying on Wednesday nights in our Wednesday night Bible study, uh, we, we, we begin to understand that I mean, there were all kinds of sacrifices you could make. Grain sacrifices, sacrifices from the harvest, sacrifices from your flock. And so it wasn't like Cain brought the wrong thing. He brought from his harvest and so you see he brought some but then you come down and you look at verse 4 and Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock now I think Moses is being very deliberate here look at what it says again Abel brings of the firstborn with the fat portions when we get to Leviticus we know based on the Levitical law what God desired when you were to bring a sacrifice you were to bring of the first the firstborn, or if it's from the harvest, the first fruits, you bring the best of what you have. And it seems like Abel did that. And it seems like Cain did not. That Cain brought just some. Some of the produce. Some of the harvest. And so it's almost as if, I think, Cain brings out of obligation. It's what he's supposed to do. While Abel brings out of a heart of worship. He knows what God wants. And so, so, so Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain's is rejected. And in that moment, Cain is furious. It's not fair. God, how could you, I mean, I brought you something. Aren't you happy with that? And, and, and why would you accept Abel's? I mean, I know he brings the firstborn, but look, I brought you a lot of, 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 of vegetables. Isn't, what, what's the problem? And then you see it. This is interesting to me. In Cain's anger, God comes to Cain. This is grace. He speaks to Cain. Look at what he says. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? In other words, God is saying to Cain, you know what I desire from you. You know what's right. You know the kind of sacrifice you're supposed to bring to me. You do what's right. If you bring what I ask of you, it'll be accepted. But look at what he says. But if you do not do what is right, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's saying to Cain, be careful. Be careful. I see it in you. I see the anger, Cain. I see the frustration. I see the jealousy. Be careful. Rule over it. Because sin is crouching at the door. If you let that anger linger, if you let that hatred for your brother linger, if you let it linger, sin is crouching at the door. It's the image of a beast, a bear, a lion, sleeping, right? 
and you got a big stick, you start poking it. You wake that sleeping beast up, it's going to pounce on you. And that is what God is saying to Cain. Cain, watch out. It's sleeping. But you're poking at it. If you keep poking at it, you're going to wake it up. And it is going to devour you. It's a warning, a clear warning to Cain. Listen to me, Cain. I I know what I'm talking about. I know what's best for you. Listen to my voice. Heed my warning. And, And for you in this room this morning, God is warning you as well because you know it. You know that there's a beast you're poking at too. You've let some anger, right? You've let some anger fester in your heart. You let some, you've let some hatred take over. You've let some bitterness take root in you. And it's just like it's, it's, it's all bubbling up inside of you and you're, and you're slowly but persistently poking at the beast and, and you're eventually gonna wake it up and that anger is gonna spill over into destructive sin, defiance against God. And you're going to end up maybe not physically murdering someone, but you might, might be uh, uh, spiritually murdering someone or, or mentally murdering someone by treating someone as if they don't matter to you anymore. You see, you're poking at it. Heed the warning. But, but here's the thing, right? When you ignore God, now look at this first tragedy that begins to happen in your life. When you ignore God, his warnings won't seem that convincing to you. That's the deal. Obviously, God warns Cain, but it's not that convincing because Cain does nothing with the warning. God's speaking loud and clear. Listen to me, Cain. But Cain chooses to ignore the warning. And I know you know this. There are some warning indicators in your own life that you need to pay attention to, right? You think about your heart. Because in some of our hearts, what's happened? Complacency has set in in our walk with God. Much like Cain, uh, we're, we're choosing not to bring God our best and what he desires from us. In our hearts, we, we, we're not spending time getting to know God and growing in intimacy. That, that complacency in your heart, it's a warning. It's a warning that sin is crouching at the door. That if you do not deal with that complacency, it might lead you down a path of destruction. Or think about your attitude that anger that you feel right now, let it be a warning to you. That bitterness that that you are are feeling towards someone else right now, let it be a warning to you. That prejudice or that judgmental attitude that you have against someone right now, let it be a warning to you. Because if you fester on that, if you let that continue to swell up within you, sin is crouching at the door. What you are doing, whether you realize it or not, is you're poking at the beast. And it's going to wake up and it's going to devour you. It's a warning. Think about this. Check your ears. Because here's why I know many of us in this room, we are in this room every single Sunday. And you have the same conviction I do. You believe that every Sunday when we gather together that God is speaking to us as we open up his word and study together. You believe like I do that, that we're hearing God's voice. Yet many of us walk out of this room doing nothing with what God has told us to do. Let that be a warning to you. God's speaking. God's speaking. He's warning you even this morning. He's bringing to mind some areas in your life that you need to bring under the control of his spirit. He's warning you right now. But many of us will choose to ignore because we're not convinced. We're not convinced that sin will devour us. We're not convinced that we'll wake up the beast. But sin is crouching at the door. And it was crouching at the door for Cain. 
And you know what happens. Let me show you what happens in this story. You come down and you look at verse 8. And then Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Moses doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't need to. It's an economy of words. But in one verse, one verse, what we find is premeditated, cold-hearted hatred and murder. The first two brothers, the first family, murder. How? God warned him. God told him. Sin is crouching at the door. But Cain doesn't listen. And he murders his brother. And so when you come to verse 9 and following, in a lot of ways, verses 9 and following are similar to what happened to Adam and Eve after they fell in the garden. Do you remember when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden fruit and, and they tried to cover themselves with leaves and they tried to hid, hide from God? God came what? He came looking for them. And now God comes looking for Cain. This is good. It's grace. God comes looking for Cain. Look at what it says. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't see him. Cain, where is he? And you probably know how, how Cain responds. God, I, I don't know. I mean, you made him, not me. I mean, I'm not my brother's keeper. I mean, that's your job, isn't it? You should know where he's at. Why am I supposed to? You're God. You're the one who's, who's omniscient and omnipresent. You see all and know. Why, why are you asking me? You know where he's at. I don't, I, I'm not my brother's keeper. And so Cain has an opportunity. God comes to him. And Cain has an opportunity to fess up. To say, you know what, God, I, you warned me and I didn't listen. This is what happened. He had an opportunity to throw himself at the grace and mercy of God. But instead, what Cain chooses to do in this moment is that he chooses to lie to God. I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. And then you come down to the next verse. Look what it says in verse 10. God said, what have you done? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, right? We know this. You can't hide anything from God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And now God says to, to Cain, your brother's blood, this is an interesting phrase, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I know exactly what you did, Cain. You murdered your brother. And so now, this is interesting, look at verse 11. You are cursed. Now, you might want to underline that phrase, you are cursed. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, you see what? The consequences for their sin. You remember Adam? His work was cursed, right? Remember that? But Adam wasn't cursed. His work was, but not him personally. You read about, about Eve and how God said that as a result of her sin, there would be uh, pain in childbirth and, and there would be you know, strife in the home. But he doesn't say to Eve that she personally was cursed. But then you read about the enemy, Satan. And God says to Satan, do you remember this? He says to Satan, you are cursed. And now you come over to chapter 3, verse 11, and you have the first human that is cursed. Why? I'll tell you why. Cain was made in the image of God. And Cain had a job to do. The same job that Adam and Eve had the same job that you and I have, 
being made in the image of God, Cain was to live his life in such a way that he represented God on this earth. That's it. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. To imitate him on this earth, his grace, his, his love, his mercy, to rule alongside of him. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. But what happens is that when Cain, now watch this, when Cain kills his brother, he wasn't representing God. He was representing Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus said what? He said to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so I think Moses is showing us something very clear. He's showing us that that in that moment where, where Cain chose to kill his own brother, he was not representing the image of God. He was representing the image of Satan. And God says, okay, here's what's gonna happen. You are made to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate the land, but no more. Uh, the earth will never give you its fruit. And not only that, you're going to live as a wanderer on this earth, a fugitive. And Cain, he, he speaks up. Again, Cain has an opportunity. He has an opportunity to confess and to say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. But he never does. Instead, look at what it says. You come to, to, to uh, um, verse 13, and Cain answers the Lord, my punishment is, is too great to bear. God, don't you know what's going to happen? You're going to send me out there as a wanderer? That, that's not fair. That's not right because what's going to happen, God, is someone is going to kill me. I mean, I, I, it's just not fair. I, I need you to do something. Give me a little bit of protection because if I just wander this earth, someone's going to hear about what I did. They're going to kill me. Interesting. Look at what it says. Verse 15, the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times. And, and he placed a mark on Cain so whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we have the question, what in the world? A mark? What kind of mark was it? Was it a tattoo? I mean, I mean what was it? And, and we just don't know what the mark was. And that's not the point. Moses isn't explaining what the mark was. What Moses is explaining to us is, look, Cain royally messed up. I mean, his sin makes Adam and Eve eating from the forbidden fruit look quite tame in comparison. Cain killed someone. Yet even though Cain killed someone, and even though he's unrepentant about it, God what? Spares his life? And God protects his life. God's gracious. And Cain can't even see it. He can't see the grace of God. And this is what happens when you ignore God. When you ignore God's voice, when you ignore God's will, you know what happens? His grace won't seem that amazing to you. Because here's what I know about us in this room. For years, many of us have sung the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You sing it, I sing it. But to many of us, grace ain't that amazing. You see what I'm saying? Many of us have chosen to ignore God's grace. You know how I know we've chosen to ignore God's grace? Every time you say, Every time I say, life's not fair. 
you're ignoring grace. Every time you say, I deserve better than this, you're ignoring grace. Every time you complain about what you don't have or how you've been mistreated, whatever the case may be, you're ignoring grace. But on the other hand, when you embrace grace, the attitude changes, doesn't it? Because when you, when you understand his amazing grace and you embrace it, you what? You can't stop singing about it. You can't stop saying in every situation, no matter how hard life may be, when you've embraced grace, you can't help but say, I'm blessed. Yeah, life is hard, but God's got me. When you embrace grace, it's not complaining, it's praising because of who God is and what he's done because you realize who you are. You realize that, that you deserve death, but God's given you life. And so I wonder in this room this morning if there are those of us sitting in these chairs who've ignored this amazing grace that God has given us. You see Cain's story? It's a story of ignoring God's voice. And it's also a story of ignoring God's grace. And I wonder for you this morning if that's where you find yourself. Ignoring the grace of God instead of embracing it and giving praise and worship for what he's done in you. You guys know that, that I was in um, New Orleans this, this past week, or actually we came back last Sunday, something, I forget, it's all whirlwind. But, but it's a great time in New Orleans right now because it is crawfish season. We, we go to New Orleans typically at Christmas time and, and in the summertime, and, and those aren't crawfish season times. There's a, there's a specific season to get crawfish. And so, so when we were there, you know, Stacy's parents asked we wanted crawfish. And I mean, I mean crawfish, there's, there's not a, a better meat to eat than crawfish meat. And so, so when they said crawfish, absolutely, let's go get crawfish. And so I asked the boys, do you want crawfish? And so last time we had crawfish, it's been several years ago. Luke was probably uh, uh, three or four years old last time we had crawfish. And, and Hudson had never had crawfish. But, but Hudson said, yes, I want crawfish. And Luke said, yes, I want crawfish. And everybody wanted crawfish. And so we were looking forward to crawfish. And, and, and I was telling Hudson, man, this is gonna be the best meat you've ever eaten. And, and I don't know the last time you had crawfish. If you've never had crawfish, I'm gonna pray for you because you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings of life. And so, so we went and got these crawfish and, and, and we poured them out on the table. And you, you've seen it, right? It's just like a, a dead fish, All right? And so, so, so when Hudson saw it, it was not what he was expecting at all. He looked at that thing and he just sat there kind of frozen in his chair. I'm like, Hudson, pick it up. Daddy, I don't want to. <laughs> Hudson, pick it up. No, Daddy, I, I don't want crawfish. But buddy, you don't understand. This is gonna be great. Pick it up, Daddy, I don't want to. It took me several minutes to get him to pick this thing up just to get a picture of it. I tell you that to tell you this. My six-year-old didn't understand what he was holding. He did not understand that what he held in his hand was the finest meat he would ever eat in this life. What he did not understand was the joy of popping that thing open and yanking that tail out with his mouth and then sucking the head. He did not understand. He didn't understand that that flavor, that, that Cajun spice that just, that just radiates through your mouth. He didn't understand the goodness that was in his hand. And I tell you that to tell you this. Some of us in this room, we don't understand either. We don't understand the one who holds us in his hand. 
We don't understand that because of his grace, he holds us in his hand and he protects us and he loves us and he shows us mercy and grace over and over again. You ignore God's grace, not realizing the one who right now is holding you and sustaining you and giving you life and who wants to give you life abundant and eternal through faith in Christ. Be careful of ignoring God's grace. Let me show you one more thing in the text. Take your Bibles. Look, look what it says. You come down and you, you read what takes place. Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That's interesting because that, that, that word Nod, it means to wander. In verse 17, Cain was intimate with his wife. Now, I know you read that verse. And again, all these questions come up that Moses doesn't answer for us. Like, there's not many people yet, right? Where, where does Moses get a, it's not Moses. Where does, where does Cain get a wife from? And, and, and so likely it's, it's one of his sisters. And I, we don't need to get all the details of that. I know, but, but that's, he's got a wife, right? And so he has a wife and, 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 and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And then Cain became, now watch this, the builder of a city. And he named the city after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad, father Mehuel, and Mehuel, father Methusel, and Methusel, father Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Ahab bore Jebel. He was the first of nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the first of all who played the lyre and the flute. And Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Interesting. Now, now watch this. Come in close. I want you to, to see what happens here. So what, what, what Cain does is he goes off and he, he can't produce from the ground. God said that. That was part of the punishment. So instead what he does is that he builds a city. And so what we have in this, this passage are the descendants of Cain and what they accomplish. A city, civilization, culture, advanced farming, tools of iron and bronze. It's a big deal. In fact, if, if you were to, to look at Cain's family and you didn't know the backstory. You didn't know that Cain murdered his brother. You didn't know that Cain had ignored God's voice. You didn't know that Cain was outside the will of God. If you were just to look at Cain's descendants, you would say what? Man, that's a successful family. Because you have lots of good things that come from the descendants of Cain. Music, right? Iron tools and advanced farming and civilization. It seems so great, but what you don't see in verses 17 through 24, is what? Any mention of anyone following after God. There's success. Now watch this. There's success, but there's no faithfulness. There's successfulness, but there's no godliness. Do you see? In fact, you look what it says. There's a descendant named Lamech who takes two wives. He, he, rebels against God's design of marriage, one man and woman, one woman for life, and, and he introduces the world to polygamy, which we'll see a lot of in the book of Genesis. He rebels. Not only does he rebel, he murders. He murders more than Cain, and then he brags about it. So there's success, but there's no faithfulness. And I tell you that because there are many of, this, many of us in this room who want to be successful but at what expense? At what cost? So what if your kid does make the college baseball team someday? If he doesn't walk with Jesus, who cares? So what if you do climb that corporate ladder and you're finally the CEO of that company? You don't know Jesus, 
What does it matter? Success without faithfulness means nothing. And, and so, so here's how we get to a place where success matters most to us. When you're constantly asking the question, what's best for me? That will lead you down a road where you completely ignore what God wants from you. And I think that's what happened in Cain's life and life of his descendants. Constantly asking the question, what's best for me? All I care about in this moment is what's best for me. There's a better question that you and I need to ask. Not what's best for me. And we've talked about this before. The question you and I should be asking is what's best for God? What's best for God and his kingdom? That's the question that, that Cain doesn't ask. And it's the question that many of us aren't asking either. And since we've asked the question, what's best for me? We've done everything we can to get in the head in life and, and we've gotten successful in all those things, but we've never stopped to ask the question, what's best for God and his kingdom? And here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned over years of, of living as a follower of Jesus. When I constantly ask the question, what's best for God and his kingdom? What I'm gonna discover is God's will, right? And what I'm gonna discover is that when I'm living in God's will, that's what's best for me. Do you see what I'm saying? You start with the wrong question all the time. What's best for me? It doesn't matter what's best for you. What's best is what's best for God and his kingdom because what's best for God and his kingdom, now watch this, what's best for God and his kingdom will always be what's best for you. Ask the right question. You see? What's best for God and his kingdom will always be what's best for you. That they can go back and listen to it online. What's best for God and his kingdom will always be what's best for you. Now, listen, listen. You see this story. It's a tragedy of a man who chooses to ignore God. And some of you this morning, you've committed the tragedy of ignoring God. But I want to show you something, and we only have no minutes left. So let me show you something real quick. Look at verses 25 through 27. I want to show you this, or 26. Look what it says. You end in verse 24. And it seems so hopeless. Until you get to verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him what? Seth. God has given me another offspring. All of a sudden, there's hope. Look what it says. You come down and you read verse 26. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people, what, church, began to call on the name of the Lord. Oh, this is good. Because you have chapter 4, the end of it, where you have these godless descendants of Cain. You follow me? But then you come to chapter 5, and there are some names in the lineage of Seth. One name is Enoch. Remember his name? He walked with God, and he was no more. Another name that you're going to read in chapter 5 is the name Noah. And then on down the line, there's a descendant of Noah. You know what his name was? Abraham. And on down the line, Jacob. Right? And on down the line, Joseph. And on down the line, Ruth. And David. And on down the line, Jesus. You see? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes a promise. When you read through chapter 4, it doesn't seem like the promise is going to be fulfilled. After all, Cain represents Satan, not God. But there's another child, Seth. 
And people begin to call on the name of the Lord. And all of a sudden, when we get to the end of chapter 4, there's hope. God is going to be faithful to fulfill his promise. And thousands of years after Cain and Abel and Seth, Jesus will be born and live a perfect life. He's going to give his life as a sacrifice to God. He's going to be the perfect man, the innocent man who does no wrong. And you know what's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to go to a cross and he's going to die. And in that moment that Jesus dies, it looks like, it looks like that his life is a lot like Abel's life. A breath. Vanity. All for nothing. Because on the cross, if you think about it, Jesus died, now watch this, at the hands of a lot of Cain's. Murdered. For nothing. This is interesting to me. Come back. I know we're out of time, but it's okay. Look at what it says. You come back to chapter 4 in Genesis and look at verse 10. Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain, your brother's blood cries out. And, And when the blood of Abel cried out to Cain, you know what it cried out. Guilt. Judgment. Punishment. Look at what you've done. Thousands of years later, when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, his blood would cry out. And his blood would cry out for you, but his blood did not cry out for you. Guilt, condemnation, judgment, punishment. No, my friend, when Jesus died on the cross for you, shedding his blood for you, his blood cried out what? Hope, mercy, grace, forgiveness, life abundant and eternal. And his blood did not stay in the ground. He rose from the dead three days later so that that promise could come to fruition in your life so all of your sins could be forgiven and you could be given the gift of life abundant and eternal. Jesus, his blood cries out for you even today. If you'll believe in him, if you'll trust him as Lord, if you'll believe that he died in your place and rose again and suffered the death that you deserve, his blood cries out to you with hope and a new beginning if you'll give your life to him. Here's what I want you to do right now. You came in and you grabbed the elements of the Lord's Supper. Now you've got a wafer on top and the cup on the bottom. Go ahead and open it up. When Jesus was with his disciples on that evening before he died, he took bread and he said to them, This is my body. From now on, every time you share in this meal together and you eat this bread, think of my body. In the bread is satisfaction. In the bread, we remember the bread of life, Jesus himself, the one who lived the life we could not live for us and then gave his life for us. And so we take this bread and we eat in remembrance of him. Go ahead and take and eat. took a cup of wine and he said to his followers from now on when you share this meal together and you drink this cup of wine you remember my blood my blood poured out for you 
Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for us so that all of our sins could be forgiven and so we could be brought into a relationship with the God who loves us. So we take and we drink, remembering the death of our Lord. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you that you did not die in vain. That you died the death that we deserve. So we could experience your grace, and your love, and your mercy, and be brought into a relationship with the God who created us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Your grace is amazing. And we don't want to ignore you. And Father, in this room this morning, there have been those of us who have ignored you for far too long. Forgive us. Lead us to repentance this morning. Help us to ask the right question. What's best for your kingdom? How can I live my life for what's best for you and your kingdom? And Father, if there's someone in this room this morning who's never trusted in the finished work of Jesus, I pray today will be that person's day of salvation. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and rise your feet as a time of invitation together. There are two crosses in the corner of this room and maybe you're in this room this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never believed in him that he died for you and rose again. And maybe this morning you want to begin a relationship with Jesus. Right now, I would encourage you to go to one of these crosses. There will be somebody there who's ready to pray with you and help you begin a relationship with Jesus as you believe that he died in your place and rose again. If you're watching online and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, reach out to us. You'll see a number coming on the screen that you can text. We would love to talk to you today and help you begin a relationship with Jesus. But as we have a time invitation, you respond as God leads you in this moment.